Welcome back to the Not Rich Yet podcast, where we have discussions on all things money, entrepreneurship, and leadership to help you uncover opportunities to build wealth in ways that are meaningful to you. I'm your host and your financially savvy big sister, Jasmine Sutherland. On today's episode, we're talking about how you can get yourself an opportunity to be on the board of a company. When I think about who constitutes the board of a company, I've always thought of wealthy, older business people. But today's guest taught me that it's possible for any professional to become a board member, and it can be more attainable than you think. There's a lot of work and preparation involved in getting there, but it can be very worth it in the end. So Elena Nunez Murdoch is on tonight to tell us more about how to position ourselves as a board candidate and where to find these opportunities, as well as some important considerations to make along the way. Elena owns an award-winning public relations agency, but she's also an angel investor and a board member at three different companies. So Elena, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, I'm very excited. I'm extremely excited to talk about this topic today. We are going to be getting into some of the specifics around what it's like to be a member of a board of a startup. This is definitely something that like I never knew was possible a year ago. I am just like learning about all this stuff now. And I know a lot of listeners are learning about this stuff along with me. But I want to talk about this topic because, you know, oftentimes you're able to earn an income from being a board member. And when we talk about income, we also like to talk about, you know, wealth and, you know, building wealth and the opportunities that we believe are possible for us when it comes to building wealth. So I would love to start there with you. What kinds of conversations about money were you having when you were growing up? You know, honestly, not a ton, which is a little surprising because when I was growing up, I grew up in Silicon Valley. Um, Both of my parents were attending the Stanford Graduate School of Business. My mom got her MBA um, and was one of very few women to be in the 90s to get an MBA from Stanford. Um, And then my dad was getting his PhD in micro-microeconomics, also from business school, um, and then was a faculty member afterwards. So you would think that being in Silicon Valley, I would have a lot. Um, but my dad uh, was a professor. Um, the, the professors don't make a ton. And there really honestly just wasn't a lot of conversations, um, which my dad went later on to be a chairman of a private equity firm. Still not a lot of conversations around finances. Um, I definitely had to learn a lot of that on my own. Um, and I know a lot of my friends who grew up the way that I did also did not have a lot of conversations around money. So some of them later worked in private equity or with family offices, Um, myself having my own business. It was something that I had to learn on the fly, but I really wish that I had had those conversations um, early on. I have to say that I am totally aligned with you there. You know, I, you know, now that I'm like actually in this financial journey for myself and have been able to teach myself a lot of these concepts and take a lot of the a- these actions on my own, I start to encounter a lot of people who tell me things like, I had my first business when I was nine years old. I learned about like investing when I was in high school and things like that. And, you know, at times it's like you can 
kind of feel like, wow, like, where was I? Like, why wasn't I learning a lot of this stuff too? But at the same time, we have to kind of give ourselves grace. You know, at least we're on that journey now and we're on that path now. So we kind of just have to acknowledge that and build from there. I totally agree. So when did you first learn of this concept of being able to build your wealth or this idea of financial independence and how did your perception of that change over time? So I learned about it actually before I had a business. Um, so I took an unorthodox route. I ended up not going to Stanford like my parents and I ended up going to a small Catholic university and was in, um, in youth ministry actually for three years before starting my own business. Um, and I learned about, and I knew about being financially independent, but at the time I was making $34,000 a year in Miami, Florida, which is not a place that I grew up in and really to thrive in Miami, even, I guess, almost eight years ago, you need to have been making 75,000 a year. Wow. Um, yes. So it, it was really difficult. And so I knew about it. I didn't really have any education around it and I didn't understand really credit cards because I had grown up so very differently and, um, that was just not explained to me. And so I ended up actually in a lot of debt. Um, I was very blessed at the time. Uh, literally my parents actually did pay off a significant part of my debt, realizing that I didn't understand. But after that, I was really on my own. So I know not a lot of people get that opportunity, but, um, after that building my business, um, without having really studied a lot of business other than growing up in Silicon Valley and being around um, the lifestyle and just family offices and private equity and and venture capital. I knew about that, but I did not know much about starting and and building my own independence in wealth. Um, And Elvest, for example, was not around at the time. So it was really like watching YouTube videos. And at the time, like, you know, there's kind of some hacks on YouTube that are not the best. Um, so it, it, I knew about it from, I guess, since I graduated college, but I didn't know how to achieve it. And I didn't think that it was possible. And then when I started building my own business, I realized it was possible, but I thought the way to do it was through services or, you know, basically wages it's service providing is a little bit different than working a nine to five, but that's not the way to achieve financial independence. And so I was seeking to be in more of the VC venture capital space, part of me. Um, and private equity space from an investing perspective, but was still figuring that out. Yeah. And were there any like significant conversations you were having with the people you knew at the time that also contributed to your understanding of what it took to build uh, meaningful wealth? A couple. I had some really good mentors. Um, I knew... I have, thankfully, because of my background, I did know how to find mentors um, and like cold approach mentors. I've cold approach a couple of very, some of the most successful people in the world in private equity and just been like, hey, I'm young. Um, I want to do this. I want to do this. Do you have time for one call a year? And so I got um, mentors that way. And so they would, they would give me like half an hour of their time. And uh, one of them was, is the um, only Latina who owns an, MB- an NBA team. Her name is Doreen Dominguez. She's been really wonderful to me. Um, another couple people who are in the hedge fund space in, in New York um, and just learning from them, even for like a little bit, gave me hope because it was a lot of it, I think, as a young, younger 
person is like, you need that hope. Like these things are possible, maybe not right now. Um, I, I wouldn't say like there was any like concrete paths that were given to me more of just like access to imagine a different lifestyle and a different space, even though I grew up pretty well, it's still as an adult, there's so much like imposter syndrome and there's so many things that come at you as an adult. Um, it was just really helpful to be in those spaces. And then I started building a client list uh, and was able to kind of rise that way. Um, but a lot of it honestly was Investopedia, huge help. I think you put it absolutely perfectly when you said that conversations give us the opportunity to imagine new possibilities and imagine a new lifestyle. And I can absolutely say that I have, you know, created some of my biggest goals as a result of just being able to talk to other people and seeking out the resources that were aligned with where my thinking was at the time, right? Like my first, I would say, uh, my first concept of this idea that, you know, you could earn 200K, 300K, 400K a year as a salary was through this like uh, social media account that it was meant for, you know, people who work in like tech and startups, but it's called Blind. And it's basically an anonymous platform for those like tech employees. Um, and on their social media account, they would like post some snippets of like the conversations that are happening, the questions people are asking. So I would like just see all these like software engineers and operators and product managers posting about like salary negotiation tips, uh, compensation package advice, and things of that nature. So I was hearing people talk about like going from 150k to 400k in x amount of years and stuff like that that absolutely influenced my perception of what kinds of salaries were attainable for someone like me and what possibilities existed out there and I'll definitely never forget that feeling of just being blown away that there are people out there who actually make that much and more too because you know there are so many uh positions within that industry and the finance industry uh that earn very very significant amounts of money so it really goes to show that like a lot of times the resources you seek out and the conversations you have can really change your perspective on things i totally agree so at that time of your life, what were some of the career goals you had? What were you thinking in terms of uh, what you wanted to do for work? Well, I had not heard of media or communications at the time. Well, I, I mean, I knew about media, but I didn't know about PR. Um, I didn't study that, as I mentioned. Um, and I really just wanted to work in the startup space in, and I wanted to find my 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 niche. And I didn't know what that was. I knew a couple things about myself. I knew that I could ask tough questions and I knew that I could be very direct. And I know that I want I knew that I wanted to serve people. And when I I love networking. Um, when I go to networking events, I was taught by my dad, um, and he learned this at Stanford at the business school, that when you're in a networking situation, you should always be seeking to serve other people. And um, I actually spoke about this at Stanford and have 
just taught other people in general. When you're in a networking situation, when you're meeting new people, always seek to serve them first. Even if it doesn't serve you, ultimately it will, will likely serve you. But if you seek to serve the other person first, you will learn about a lot about them and a lot about yourself. Um, and so I knew that I wanted to be in the venture capital space. Um, I was working with startups at the time and I wanted to move and switch to working with VCs. Um, I thought it was a very cool, you know, industry and just investing in companies and solving problems is really what I really wanted to do. And working with um, tech startups in public relations and getting them featured in the media and doing operations and doing all these different types of work wherever I could find work, um, building up my portfolio. Uh, I knew that I just wanted to solve problems and being on the, on the tech, on the tech side, on the startup side, you can solve problems, but you're assigned to something by the CEO versus if you're on the venture capital side, because I had worked with one at one point, um, you were basically like, if you had a solution to something, even if it wasn't in your quote unquote services or scope, they would accept that. And they'd be like, run with it. Um, even if it was out of scope, but at the time I was doing a lot of out of scope things, but I really wanted to be a problem solver because that's what gives me life. And I wanted to serve other people to the best of my ability. Um, so venture capital was that next step. And then from there, I work with quite a few um, incubators and accelerators and then transform them, uh, their storyline, you know, how to, commute to communicate with uh, limited partners who had invested in their fund, like why they were becoming a venture capital firm. Um, I did that with with some help from a wonderful copywriter that I work with to this day. Um, but then also transitioning from venture capital, then I was picked up by a private equity firm. And I was, <clears throat> pardon me, I was picked up then by other private equity firms. And because I have a family office background, I was then also working with family offices and then started working with their portfolio companies, many of which private equity, venture capital, family offices all invest for the most part in tech. So all of these things were tied together by me getting involved in the tech space. Well, number one, I really want to say that I completely agree with your point on being able to give to others. That's actually advice that I heard myself um, from someone who is uh, much wiser than I am in terms of career progression and leadership opportunities. But um, I was told the same thing pretty much, right? Like when you enter, uh, you know, a conversation or a potential working relationship with the mindset of how can I create value for you? Uh, you are more likely to build a stronger connection. And not only that, but when you give to others, they're going to want to give back to you and be a resource for you and help you. So I really love that your experiences echoed that as well. Yes, yeah, so it, it was definitely like a journey. Say, did, again, didn't study it. But I, the, the great thing about America, in my opinion, many great things. One of the best things is that even if you didn't study something, you can go into a different field and just build experience. And as long as you are excellent at what you do, you're going to find success. Um, and that that's exactly what I did. Absolutely. That is amazing. So pivoting a little bit more towards this aspect of being a member of the board of a startup, how did you learn that, number one, this was a thing, that people could do and number two how did you uh kind of make that shift into your first board member position 
Sure. So I actually always knew that it existed, even from when I was like a kid, um, because I, uh, my parents, my dad was a trustee um, at Stanford University, and I had mentors and family friends who were board members at major publicly traded companies. So I always knew that it was a thing. I never really had any interest in it, and I didn't really know what it entailed, but I knew that it was a, a thing that one could do. And then probably when I started becoming more involved in the tech space, I was like, ooh, this position of being on a board, um, you know, you can make a lot of impact, not just from a strategy and big picture, you know, position, which is something that I'm really good at, um, but from a, a standpoint of influencing other parts that I might not be, be as knowledgeable, but could learn. And I do believe with my whole heart that being a board member is the greatest way to make impact on a larger scale from like a macro scale, um, not just in our country, but on the world. If you're on a board of a company in general and they're making an impact on the world, hopefully for the good, um, you're going to then make an impact. And what you say in those meetings has an impact on the company and thereby the world. Um, so I, I always knew about it. It just was a question of, did I get interested in it? And not until I was probably 2018, which is, was about a year and a half into my business that I was like, Oh, I really need to dig into this and make this a priority. I got on my first board when I was 28 and it was actually a nonprofit. Um, and then from there I got on a, the advisory board of a community foundation in Los Angeles. It's the fastest growing community foundation in the country. Um, and what I learned from a mentor of mine who was the CEO of, of a public company is that all boards count. I used to think that if you were on a nonprofit board or if you were like on a smaller company board, it didn't really matter, but all board experience counts. And you learn a lot, even at a nonprofit level, of if the nonprofit is structured well, of how a board is structured, you know, what is the voting, um, what, what should minutes be, who's taking minutes, all these like little details I learned at a nonprofit and a community foundation board. So were these meetings that took place in person or were they virtually? Um, in person, pre-COVID, everything was in person. Now there have been like allowances for, for Zoom, but everything everything is in person or was in person. Got it. So what were the kinds of conversations, if you're allowed to say, um, or even just speak very generally on it, what were the kinds of conversations or uh, topics that would pop up within these meetings? Sure. So it, it depends on like what kind of board you're on. So for the for the nonprofit, so I, I've, I've been on a couple different types of boards. The only board that I'm not a part of right now is a public board, but I'm on the board of uh, the Community Foundation Advisory Board. I'm also on the board of a, a smaller stage, early stage company, a shoe company. Kara Mac Shoes, and then also Zero Knox, which is a, I would say, mid-stage company. It's, uh, they just announced they're going to go public. So they have like a, I think we're valued at 250 million roughly. Um, so different stages of boards. So from a nonprofit perspective, you're looking at, especially from a community foundation perspective, you're looking at how many accounts, um, how many donor advised funds specifically are coming in. You know, what is the assets under management? What that looks like? What kind of growth? What kind of staff, you know, are there, is there a staff budget? Um, a lot of more of like financials and like more of those details for, for the community foundation. For a nonprofit board, you're looking at, it's going to be a heavily development board. So the difference primarily between company boards and nonprofits is that nonprofits, you're going to have to pay in some capacity, either time, talent, or treasure. 
to be on that board. Like most of the time, it's, it's some sort of compensation that you're paying. Um, and that can range from $100 um, and to $700 to, you know, thousands of dollars, especially if you're in, your, in New York City, uh, which I'm not. But it can range very, very, very wide. Um, and then from a smaller tech nonprofit, or, uh, sorry, from a smaller tech company or just a smaller start, startup in general, um, you're looking at what kind of ac- customer acquisition costs are you are you facing? What kind of markets are you getting into? What is your market cap? Um, if you're a fiduciary board member, which means you have a responsibility to shareholders and current investors, your responsibilities are going to be kind, quite different from an advisory board member. Um, and the difference really is, um, again, are you responsible to the shareholders and the stakeholders, or are you just advising because you have something cool to advise on? Is a good way to put it. Um, but and then when you get to a larger stage company, you're you're talking about you know strategy, um, a lot of fundraising. Honestly, every board every board type, there's a lot of fundraising, um, whether it's coming from donor donors from a nonprofit standpoint, or if you're raising money from shareholders. Um, you know, looking at what your your burn rate for capital is um, from, you know, HR, HR positions and, you know, who's hiring, what's being hired, executive compensation, audit. Um, there's a quite a different, there's a different shift for sure. And that adjustment was, was interesting, but those are roughly the topics that are talked about. Got it. So what kinds of, um, or I guess what, what sort of knowledge would be useful to have if you're someone who is seeking a position on a board or this is something that interests you? I think it depends on the board because there's so many verticals that you, that could be that you could be a board member of. And so I've heard advice um, that you should pick a lane and stick to it. I don't really have a lane. <laughs> Technically, um, I really am fascinated by manufacturing, logistics, and supply chain. Um, I've worked with quite a few VCs in in that space and and tech companies. So that's something that I have really loved, even though I didn't study it. Um, and just had grew my knowledge in. But also, be I think being a problem solver and driving the car with the other board members in the right way, as long as you're growing and scaling the company in some way, that's going to be helpful. Uh, which I know is very broad, but I wouldn't be like a I don't know that I would be a generalist and everything. Like I come at it and I got on my first company board because I own a PR, an award-winning PR agency. Um, and I know media and communications or I learned it. And I have an awesome team who is also incredible at it. And we do investor relations and other things like that. But other than that, I wanted to learn about manufacturing. And so I couldn't say that in my board interview. But, you know, if if you are an accountant, I would say building a good board includes having an accountant or a CPA of some sort um, having a lawyer on the board, also very helpful. Um, I'm helping structure a board right now. Um, that was the advice that I gave them. And then having somebody in media, because in the event that you have a crisis, you're going to want immediate feedback and not have to be like, okay, we need to hire an agency. They should have some knowledge of that. Um, thankfully, I don't involve, I'm not involved with any boards that have any crises right now, just to be clear. But that should be something when you're thinking about building a board to have. Um and then also any kind of, if you just if you're a general problem solver and you're in some sort of position that you solve problems for the company, whether corporate or your own company or even a nonprofit, and you know you can build that skill set, just have a portfolio where you can show clear 
Like I went from X to Y in this amount of time. And those impressive metrics will help you when you are get to a position that you will have a board interview. That's fantastic. And actually, as you were uh, listing out some of the uh, types of people, it would be really great to have um, something like popped into my head a few months ago, actually, on LinkedIn, uh, this firm had reached out to me, uh, just a like cold uh, reach out on LinkedIn. Uh, they had messaged me to gauge my interest and in being a member of their board, actually. Um, and I took a look at their company and everything, and they were actually a um, firm that specialized in investing in the health tech space. Now, I don't really have any experience when it comes to being an operator within the health tech space at all. Um, I have a background in financial journalism, um, but I've never been an operator or worked at, you know, any sort of healthcare company. So at first I thought it was a little strange, but then you mentioned that, you know, it could be very helpful to have someone with a background in media and communications on your board. Uh, and then it kind of made sense to me now. So, I mean, that could have been the approach they were going for, but I just thought that was very interesting, uh, number one. And number two, I am right there with you when it comes to finding it hard to stay in a lane. I'm definitely someone who is very multi-passionate. I'm interested in a lot of different things and different spaces. But, you know, of course, at the same time, like I have very focused and intentional interests, but I do have a lot of them. I would agree. I have a lot of them too. And I, I keep finding new things that I'm interested in from a board level. Like, oh, I need to learn about that. I will say actually one of the really helpful things in getting more education and being a board is joining a, an association that has education. So there's one that I was actually just at an event last night, the Private Directors Association. They were started in Chicago. They have chapters all over the country. You do technically need to be a board member to join them but it's very high ROI and very low cost to join, but finding similar groups where you can have a lot of education about being on a board and where everybody else in the room is either has been a board member or is trying to be a board member. So it, they maybe not necessarily have to be a board member to join, but you'd need to have had significant CEO experience. Um, but those there are similar types of groups all over the country and having that education to learn like because every, everybody should always be in a state of learning if you're if you're saying like oh i'm at the top of my game i'm good i can't learn from you know the person that i'm talking to in this call or in general then that's kind of a uh very egotistical attitude for sure but it will not get you far um but al always being in a state of learning it will get you far and will serve you especially if you're looking to be on a board that is honestly such a life motto i feel like it, you're you're just not setting yourself up to reach your full potential and attain success if you are not open to constantly learning. Um, I think that there is always some sort of lesson to be learned in any experience, and there's always something you'll be able to take away that will help you get to the next level. But if you're someone who has never been on the board, on a board at all, what are some ways that you might be able to leverage the experiences you have had 
and make yourself stand out better as a potential candidate? I would say get mentors who you want to be one day, even if like your preferences change, like you can, especially if you're young, if you're young and young, I mean, under 35, um, I would say like your twenties, especially if you have like a clear goal of where you want to be and you approach somebody who has significant experience and you want, and you you can say, cause I have done this and this helped me, you know, this is how old I am. This is what I'm really good at. I really want to be you someday. Do you have, you know, an hour a year because these, you know, I mean, if you look at, I'm sure your schedule, Jasmine is booked all the time as is mine. You know, I, I have an hour a year. I have an hour a year for sure. If I don't want to talk to someone, I'll say no, but if I can help them or if, you know, if people who are much more senior than I am, I have gotten mentors that way. Like, Hey, do you have time? Or sometimes if I want more time, I'll be like, can I connect with you in quarter two and quarter four? Um, and I've gotten mentors that way as, as well. Um, very senior people and people who run some of the biggest financial institutions in the world that way. So if you leverage your youth, people who are older want to give back. And if you are older and you're looking to get on a board, um, just leveraging your expertise and getting into these associations like private directors association, um, the national association of corporate directors is another one that is definitely more expensive, but it's still really good education and just leveraging, getting more education is a good way to get on a board. But if you're younger and, and you can also get mentors at any age, but if you're younger, you have a better chance of getting, you know, somebody to who wants to give back and maybe isn't able to give back at like a nonprofit level because nonprofits sometimes meet once a month. And I, for example, used to be on like three or four boards of nonprofits. And when my business started scaling and growing, um, I had to get off of them because I had no longer had time. But I think everybody has time for an hour phone call a year. Absolutely. And how do we find some of these job descriptions? for board positions are they typically something that we can like uh type into linkedin and see what pops up or is it very much something that is uh you kind of have to make the connections so you are aware of the opportunities before they're even posted i think both um there are some available via linkedin i would say the ones that i have found via linkedin and then interviewed have been more like bait and switch almost because it has been like, oh, be a board member, but then they also require an investment. And then sometimes it's not even a like a real board in that they want to, you're not, you don't have a fiduciary responsibility, but they'll word it in a way to like hook you in. So you have to be careful with that. Um, I would say the best way to be on a board or find a board is through your network. And that is ultimately how I found all of mine. Um, I also, one of the boards, uh, the community foundation advisory board, um, I really want to, I'm very passionate about philanthropy and very passionate about donor advised funds, which I believe is the most efficient way to give. So I said, Hey, I'm young. I have a good community in LA, you know, people who are in private equity and who I would love to bring in, but I need to have some sort of board position. Can I be on your advisory board? And they were like, sure. So sometimes it's just going out and asking, um, LinkedIn is okay. I would say building your network and getting mentors who will in the corporate in corporate America, I know it's called sponsors, um, outside of corporate America that that lingo isn't really used, but find somebody who can speak for you and who can recommend you, but you also have to have a portfolio to back that up. So if you're really, if you're in your twenties, it's going to be harder unless you've already sold a company. 
um, or even a couple companies, I would say going the venture capital route and being an angel investor, investing in a fund, um, you're likely to find out about about board opportunities. Um, if you're not in the tech space and you're in corporate America, I would say finding a sponsor in corporate America who can speak for you. Maybe you have a sponsor, you know, who's a senior VP or even C level, and they're you know starting to get on boards and thinking about that. You really, if you want to get on a board, though, the best advice I was given by several people who have sit on publicly traded boards is to think about this in your early 20s so that by your time you're in your late 20s and you're getting on your first board, you're younger by 20 years of likely everybody else. And then when you are in your 40s and your 50s, you will have had 20 years of board experience, which I have, and I know quite a few people are just getting on their first boards as 50 and 60 year olds. And yes, they have a ton of corporate or CEO scaling experience, but board experience, they don't have as much. So the younger people are getting more boards versus older. I mean, it, it depends on what industry and what your expertise is, but people are looking for, have you been on a board? You know, have you scaled that? If you're going to be, for example, um, I led the planned sales strategy for the stocks for Xeranox, the board that I'm on. I said, we need a longer lockup period to make sure that the stocks are, our, our stock prices are high and that we have the capital to fulfill our growth plans. And I was, I looked at, you know, SPACs historically, and I was like, you know, why have so many failed in the DSPAC process? So people want to see that kind of experience. And the younger you get that experience, the more success you're going to have in getting on more boards. That's amazing. And I have to say, the sense I'm definitely getting from this is that becoming a board member can sometimes be a bit of a long game where you should be planting those seeds way, way before you're ready to actually harvest them. Um, and that's something that also rings true for a lot of other industries like venture capital, for example. A lot of times you have to be doing a lot of behind the scenes work that kind of feels invisible at times, like you're not yet gaining anything tangible for it, from it yet. You're not yet getting the position you're looking for. However, the connections you're making, the value you're seeking to bring to founders, the projects and initiatives and the deep dives you're conducting are all going to work together to eventually give you a way to showcase your expertise and the way you've been thinking about things and the way you're able to make an impact. And like you mentioned, you could end up creating a community of people uh, or other professionals who are able to follow you through your journey and go where you go. And that's absolutely something that can be really attractive to people who are already on a board and looking to bring someone on who's new. Absolutely. It's definitely about long-term game, which I think being in media has helped with that. Uh, as yourself, as somebody who's in media, because you're when you pitch someone or you're writing a story, it's often like you're pitching someone months ahead of time. So, and like, especially if you're doing print, it's like a year ahead of time. So that patience definitely has helped. Because when I was younger, I was also very impatient. I was like, I want to get on a board, you know, this year. Um, but that's something that I now that I look back, I'm like, man, I, I'm glad that I'm in media because I learned that patience and I learned how to also position yourself. Um, positioning yourself is very important. Um, and I'm very thankful I'm in media because of that, because I, I position my clients every day and working on yourself, I would say is harder 
for some strange reason, it's like that saying the cobbler sh- kids have the worst shoes. Um, <laughs> but still, knowing having that skill, sort of knowing how to position yourself um, with the right, you know, words that captivate and convert someone who's looking to be, put you on their board and looking at your bio versus, you know, like instead of, I see a lot of bios when we start working with clients that are just like everything they've ever done versus like metrics that are what our boards are looking for. Um, so being in media has been extremely helpful for that. Absolutely. So pivoting a little more towards the money side of things and you don't have to like give super like specific figures or anything, but are uh, most board positions paid opportunities? So again, it depends on the board. So if you're a nonprofit, you're going to be paying to get on a board unless it's maybe make a wish, then I'm not sure. I think those do pay smaller um, tech companies or even tech companies that are large may not be paid because they're putting all of their cash into growing their product or services as they should be. Um, but some, some small, some startup companies and startup being maybe one to four years are do some sort of compensation, whether they do stocks, um, or shares, I guess, shares and, uh, some paid, um, public companies are also paid, um, but public companies versus private company. And so then, sorry. So then, uh, before we get to public private companies that can be quite large, you know, from lower mid market to upper mid market, you know, worth billions, those, those positions are going to be heavily paid because those are usually privately owned. And so they want good board members, but they don't want a board member who has a lot of shares because they want the, the, you know, the family business from a family office or portfolio company, you know, they want the majority of majority control. So they're going to pay you and compensate you cash wise more um, and give you very little shares. And then when you're in a public company, you're going to get more stocks and less less compensation in cash, which is something that I have learned. Um, and there's exa- there's definitely exceptions. Like if you're on the board of Coca-Cola, you can get very nice compensation ca- packages. Um, and there are definitely Fortune, other Fortune 100 companies and some Fortune 500 companies that you get that you know sometimes you can get paid two hundred thousand in in cash and in in an additional you know stocks. But that is rare, and that's something I actually learned in the last year because I was like, oh, I, I definitely want to be a board member for the rest of my life. It's something I'm very passionate about. Um, but I did learn, I was like, if you really want to make like an actual career and living from it, you'd want to be on a private company board and um, something that's been around for like 40 or 50 years. And then if you want, I, I really have a passion for sitting on public company boards, even though I'm not technically one. It's something that I know that I want to do. I've talked to enough people. Um, but compensation wise, it's, um, again, heavy on the stock side, heavy on the share side and not as much on the cash side, which, um, is totally fine for me. Cause I have my, my PR agency. I'm, I do a variety of other things. Um, but just compensation wise, if you're looking to be a board member, just know that if you're going that direction, you're not going to get wealthy necessarily just from doing that. And is it possible to like, serve on multiple boards simultaneously or are there any conflicts of interest that we should be keeping in mind? Yes. So it is possible to serve on several simultaneously. I have quite a few mentors who sit on three or four publicly traded boards like major companies like Coca-Cola, Citibank. I'm thinking of one in particular. Um, 
and a couple other ones. The tricky part, honestly, that I haven't gotten to yet is the scheduling because you can't say like, hey, I have another board commitment. You know, can we reschedule something? Like I, um, for example, when we were, before Xeranox went public, and I, I mean, I can share this, it was just a meeting, it was a meeting situation. We had just had a meeting the day before and they were going to make the announcement that we were going to go, intending to go public via SPAC. And I was like, look guys, like I have a full day of clients today. Like I cannot meet earlier than 8 p.m. And they're like, hey, you don't have a choice. And I was like, cool. <laughs> so I had to figure it out. Um, so scheduling can be, is something that I'm learning and is usually I think why people who have that, you know, are almost retired are on several, but there are definitely people who own their own companies who just make it happen. Um, conflict wise. So when I was filling up paperwork for the SEC for Xeranox, I had to list, it's interesting. It's not just the boards that you sit on. If you're going public, it's all the companies that you own at least 10% stake in. And so I had to list all of those. Um, and I was surprised that it was only 10, like it was 10%. So that means that the SEC sees a 10% stake, which I mean, if you look at, I guess, if you look at a, a larger scale company, that is a lot. But if you think about, especially in venture capital, all the ways that um, people own different, like large, large, you know, shares of these companies, it's like, man, I didn't think 10% was a ton. So it's, it's really seeing if you're on a board of like a tech company, like you can't necessarily own a significant part of another tech company that could be in competition, which I did know, thankfully. Um, I invest heavily in media and consumer uh, packaged goods um, and, and not so much in green tech and battery technology because I knew that would be a conflict. So you just have to be careful, especially if a company that you know either, in, either invest in or in uh, that you're on the board of, if they're planning to go public, you're going to have to list all that for the SEC. Um, and I actually just got on a board after I had to list the documentation for the SEC. So I have to now go back and be like, hey, I'm on another board, but it's a shoe company. It's not battery technology. So what are some of the consequences of, you know, just not understanding some of those nuances? Like, is this something where if you, like, fail to disclose something or, you know, some there there are some new developments that could potentially be a conflict um and you don't like do anything about it is this something where you could be like fined by the sec what are some of those penalties like you know i'm honestly not sure um i have a, i just got a securities lawyer so i'm in the process of learning um a lot of those penalties um i just know that anything with the sec i do not want to be in conflict with or be in any like bad light with so um, I, I, I would imagine, though, that if, if there are penalties from the SEC, it would be serious, which is an also, uh, there's a, a, something called a, a director's and officer's insurance that if you're on a board, typically the board should indemnify you, which is mean they should protect you via their director's and officer's policy. However, I do recommend, because I'm in the process of getting one, to have your own director's and officer's insurance, especially if you want to be on a board, even a nonprofit board, because if for whatever reason, and I'm not saying this is going to happen, but if you historically look at litigation by shareholders, or if you look at litigation by, you know, and anybody in any type of board, nonprofit, small, private, et cetera, you need to make sure that you're protecting yourself and your assets. And yes, the boards should indemnify you up to, I think, 5 million, 5 to 10 million. 
Um, but legal fees can be expensive. Um, and when you're in court, you don't want to go with like, you know, your, your next door neighbor who's a lawyer. You want to go with Kirkland Ellis. You want to go with Scadden. You want to go with someone who's going to be, you know, a bulldog. And though, like to work with Scadden, I think is, I think it's a minimum of a million to hire them. Wow. And so get a good directors and officers insurance. Um, if you're planning on being a board, they are not, not a lot of people talk about them, but I, I learned this from, um, a CFO, a former CFO of one of the largest private equity firms in the world. And she was like, you have to get your own directors and officers insurance. Um, and that'll also protect you with SEC. Anything the SEC would come after you, quote unquote, whatever would happen there, that, that, you know, would then kick in as well. Yeah. So it definitely sounds like while there could be opportunities to earn some sort of compensation from being a board member, it also kind of sounds like we may be spending some money to uh, have these opportunities. So how could we best prepare ourselves for the potential to, you know, spend a little money, whether we are looking to get on a nonprofit board where we have to pay um, to seeking insurance for coverage uh, for things like this? Um, I think just being mindful of your budget, uh, I, for example, directors and offers of insurance, I was told starts at 50,000 and it's due within 30 days of getting the policy. And so I was like, cool. So I have, I don't know if that's the f- price that I'm getting. Cause I have a different, they were like, if you get, you know, X million, this is what it would be. And I was like, cool, let me know. Um, but making sure you're aware of your budget. I am very blessed. My fiance, um, is very good with numbers. And so he's been helping me. Um, but making sure that you can spend that money um, when that co- time comes. And for nonprofits, I would say just ask and like be upfront with it and just say, how much is it? You know, I would love to be on your board. This is my skill set. I'm really passionate about this cause. You know, I, I understand there's probably like some sort of compensation, you know, what that I have to give. Uh, what does that look like? And just having that, if you can't afford that all in one go, a lot of people are flexible and just you know, like, Hey, like, this is not my budget right now, but I'm really passionate about this. I know that I can serve you. Um, is there a flexibility? Can we do like this spread out over a couple of quarters? And usually people say yes. Got it. So another question, um, too, going back to the idea that, you know, seeking board positions and gaining board positions is a bit of a long game. Do you think it makes sense to maybe start off in like more of an unpaid advisory capacity and then kind of work your way up into some of the roles that may be compensated more heavily? I think it depends. It's it's hard to plan it out because, for example, I just got on a board. Or I'm in the process of getting on this board for Caramac Shoes. And that came kind of out of the blue and it's, it's kind of, um, it's a smaller stage, but the, the fellow board of directors are incredible people like the creative director of Halston. And I was like, wow, this is incredible. Um, so it, it depends on what your goals are. And like sometimes, like for example, the first board that I got on company wise was Xeranox. And at the time they, they were like, they, we want to like, we want to go public. That's the goal. Um, but I had never been on a company board before. So it's really about what are the opportunities. Um, it's great to get experience, you know, the, the nonprofit, I don't know if that part was actually really considered. It was really more of like the media expertise. Um, but if you have an opportunity to get on a paid board, 
I would just say, take it. Like if somebody's clearly sees something in you that you might not see in yourself and just take the opportunity and build your expertise around that. Um, I wouldn't say start small and then go big. Like you can start big and then you can, you know, go reverse. Um, and if somebody's, you know, again, gives you that opportunity, you, you have to take it. Um, you know, you do your due diligence, you know, don't do anything <laughs> rash, but if it makes sense and the company is clean and, you know, you, you talk to some people in your network about it and, you know, talk to um, an investment banker and talk to a private equity guy and talk to a venture capitalist and, um, you know, and just, and get a feel for it, then I would say, take it. But I wouldn't say you have to start small and then go up, but um, if you're coming from corporate America, I could see that that logic in that because that's how you scale the corporate ladder. But when you get outside of that bubble, um, the opportunities are endless and you know they can come at you from anywhere really. You have to be open to receiving them and just have a really good network and be known for wanting to serve and solve problems. Amazing. I think that is a fantastic note to end on. Elena, this has been tremendously helpful and I've really enjoyed our conversation so far. Thank you so much for talking. Thank you so much for having me on. I, I really love your show. So thank you. Thank you. And tell us where we can find you and your PR agency. Yep. So we're actually website free, been website free for since before COVID. Um, but you can find me on link, on LinkedIn. Uh, we are a referral only, actually, but we're on LinkedIn. I write um, also on Grit Daily on investing and venture capital cycles. Um, those are the two, the two best places. If you've made it this far, I want to take the time to thank you for tuning in to today's episode. As a valuable listener, you definitely inspire and encourage me to keep creating high quality content that helps you reach your goals which is why the best way to show me that you're getting a lot out of this episode and the show is to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. By doing so, you'll also help other people find this podcast so we can all grow together. The more, the merrier. Please also don't forget to follow along on social media. We are at NotRichYetPod pretty much everywhere. Plus, if you're following us on Instagram, you get to participate in fun, money, and business polls in our Instagram stories daily. I do all the researching, interviewing, recording, and hosting, but this podcast couldn't happen without the help of our Not Rich Yet team. The show is produced by Ambiguous Podcast Solutions and edited by Will Tarashuk the founder of Willie T Productions and the founder of Ambiguous Podcast Solutions. I'm your host, Jasmine Suknanen, and I'll catch you in the next episode.